0: From Luke chapter 2, verses 1 through 7, in those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria, and all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem. Because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who is with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son, and wrapped him in swaddling cloths, and laid him in a manger, because there was no place for them in the inn. From Revelation chapter 21, verses 1 through 5, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven from their eyes. And death shall be no more, neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain any more, for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. From Luke chapter 7, verses 18 and 19. The disciples of John reported all these things to him, and John, calling two of his disciples to him, sent them to the Lord, saying, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? And from Genesis chapter 3, verses 8 and 9, And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden." But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? This is the word of the Lord. To God. You may be seated.
1: Beloved, there's my opinion, there's your opinion, and then there is. The very word of God which Lauren has just read to us. Would you pray with me? Father, there's nothing more that we need right now than to hear you, than to hear you speak to us through your word, by your spirit. We pray, Lord, that you would do just that, that you would convict us, that you would challenge us, and that you would comfort us, and ultimately that you would change us. Lord, we long to see you in your beauty. We long to taste and see that you're good. Would you do that this morning? We pray this in Christ's name, amen. Well again, good morning, my name is Jeff Wilkins and along with Eric Quorum, I'm one of the elders here at City Church. If you're visiting with us, welcome. We are really grateful that you would take time out of your weekend uh, to be here. Uh, I wanna begin this morning by drawing your attention to the quote by Fleming Rutledge that's at the top of the reflection section of your worship guide a quote from her book entitled Advent. Now, what I want you to see as we, as we look at her quote is, that, is how she understands the season of Advent. She, she sees the season of Advent as this, this symbol that really represents the Christian experience from the time of Jesus's first coming to the time of his return. It's it's where we reflect on the fact that we live in a gap. We live in a gap between the promises of God and their fulfillment. What Eric just talked about, Jesus's initial coming to earth and his final return between The already and the not yet between the inauguration of the kingdom of God and its ultimate consummation at the end of time. We live between the first coming of Jesus 2,000 years ago, that Jesus that Lauren just read to us about from Luke chapter 2, the Jesus born to Mary and Joseph in in the city of David in the city of Jerusalem. The baby boy uh, wrapped in swaddling cloths and laid in a manger because there was no room for him or them in the inn. That's one side. The other side is, is the picture of Jesus that we find in Revelation chapter 21, who, when he returns, will make his dwelling place with his bride, the church that he will will wipe away every tear, he will destroy death, and he will make all things new. It's a glorious picture. But what I want you to think about is what is the experience of believers between the first coming of Jesus and his final return? That's where Fleming Rutledge's words speak. Look with me at what she writes. She says, The atmosphere of crisis is the story of the life of the Christian community in the time between for 2,000 years. Advent is designed to show that the meaning of Christmas is diminished to the vanishing point if we are not willing to take a fearless inventory of the darkness. Advent is not for the faint of heart. This is from a sermon that Rutledge entitles, Advent Begins in the Dark. A sermon that along with a series of sermons by a friend of mine, Jeremy Jones, some of you might remember him from a number of years ago, has helped frame and shape and inform and direct not only my sermon today, but actually this entire Advent series that we're gonna be doing um, this Advent. Now, here's the question that we have to wrestle with. Why does Rutledge describe the atmosphere between the time of Jesus's incarnation 2,000 years ago and his return? Why does she describe our experience at that time as an atmosphere of crisis? Why does she say that Advent is not for the faint of heart? Why does she uh, encourage us to take a fearless inventory of the darkness? Well, because it's 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 not easy to live in a gap. It's not easy to live between the promise of God and God's fulfillment of his promise. It's not easy to live between the already and the not yet. It's not easy to live between the first and the second comings of Jesus. It's it's a lot like a woman in the early stages of labor. As many of you know this firsthand, there is a lot of waiting. And there can be a, a lot of pain in the process. Advent, as New Testament, the faint of heart. But even more than that, as New Testament believers, we believe that right now, at this very moment, the resurrected Christ is sitting at the right hand of God, the Father Almighty. Meaning that right now, at this very moment, the resurrected Christ is reigning and ruling over all of creation. But if you step back and you think about it, that raises a lot of questions. Because if you look around, it doesn't look like the resurrected Christ is ruling and reigning over all creation. Rather, it looks like Jesus may have gone on vacation. Like we may have an absentee savior how how do we say that how can we say that jesus is ruling and reigning over all of creation and yet babies get sick and end up having to be admitted to the hospital marriages come unraveled innocent people get shot and killed in crossfire People are diagnosed with life-threatening diseases. Parents get dementia. How can we say that the Christ is ruling and reigning over all creation? If you're like me, oftentimes you look at the world and, and, and the question that comes to mind is, God, where are you? A number of years ago, Dustin Salter, a dear pastor friend of mine, had a bicycle accident that left him in a coma and ultimately took his life. Um, he was in his 30s. He had a beautiful family. He, he, was, he was your ages. Beautiful family, three children, a lovely wife. His ministry, he was a pastor, his ministry was bearing tremendous fruit. And then, for, for, for no reason that I can understand, he ends up in a coma in a hospital on the 10th, uh, hospital bed on the 10th floor of Greenville Memorial Hospital. Uh, One Saturday morning, I was sitting in Dustin's room because Kathy and Dustin's wife were down at the hospital and I was trying to pray. I'd been a pastor for 10 years and I remember saying this to God, God, I don't even know if you exist. Have Have you ever asked that question? Have you ever wondered, God, where are you? Have you ever thought, if God has truly come in Jesus Christ, why do things remain the way they are? Why do so many terrible things happen? Beloved, those are Advent questions. Those are Advent questions. Those are questions asked by people living in the gap. And here's the question for us. What do you do with them? I love the passage that Lauren read from John 7. John the Baptist is sitting in jail and he is absolutely confused. He is confounded. He's confounded and confused because he baptized Jesus. And what John tells us in his gospel is that when he baptized Jesus, he actually saw with his eyes the Spirit of God descend upon Jesus. And he heard with his ears the voice of the Father, you are my son in whom I am well pleased. John the Baptist was completely, fully, absolutely convinced in that moment that Jesus is the Messiah. And then he finds himself sitting in a prison And he has second thoughts. So what does he do? He sends two of his disciples to Jesus to ask him, are you the one or should we look elsewhere? Now, what's so encouraging to me about this account is the way that Jesus responds. Because Jesus doesn't get offended by the question. He doesn't, he doesn't get angry, he doesn't blow up, he doesn't get mad. Instead, he quotes from the prophet Isaiah and he tells John's dis- disciples, go and tell John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive their sight, lame walk, the uh, lepers are cleansed and the deaf hear, the dead are raised up and the poor have good news preached to them. Now, what does, this, what does this tell us? It tells us this that there is absolutely nothing wrong with asking God hard questions. They don't scare him. He doesn't get angry. John the Baptist has this super deep question, questioning Jesus himself, and yet immediately following his question, Jesus says this about John. Up to this moment in time, among those born of woman, none is greater than John. Jesus praises John, even as he asks his question. And that's really, really encouraging because it makes room for you and it makes room for me. It makes room for your questions and it makes room for my questions. And that's really encouraging. But it doesn't answer our question. It doesn't address the fact that oftentimes it feels like God is not there. That God, if he is there, is not listening. What do you do with that? What do you do with the fact that sometimes it feels like God is silent. In the classic movie, The Seventh Seal, takes place sometime around the 12th century. A disillusioned knight returns to his homeland after going to the Middle East, the Holy Lands, to participate in the Crusades. When he arrives home, he discovers that his homeland, which is Sweden, is is um, is is deep, knee deep in the plague, in the black death. It is ravaged by the plague. Antonius Black Block is his name. And he, he spirals into depression. And he begins to struggle with the very existence of God. And he says this, he says, I want knowledge. Why does he, why does God hide in a cloud of half promises and unseen miracles? I want knowledge, not faith, not assumptions, but knowledge. I want God to stretch out his hand, uncover his face and speak to me. Have have you ever, have you ever thought were said something along those lines how many times have you prayed god please give me some kind of sign that you were here that you are real give give me just one miracle give me something give me anything What happens? In the words of Antonio Block, I call out to him in the darkness, but it is as if no one is there. What do you do with the silence of God? Some people. They try to silence the silence. They try to silence the questions by throwing themselves into the busyness of the Christian life. They pray harder. They read their Bible all the time. They go to Bible studies here. They go to Bible studies there. They just, they just clutter their lives full of Christian activity. And what they're really doing is they are ignoring the silence. They are ignoring the the questions. But in the words of Francis Schaeffer in his book, he is there and he is not silent. The donkey of devotion can only bear so many unanswered questions before it lies down and dies. Others, they simply walk away from their faith in discouragement. This was my experience growing up in the church. Uh, I grew up in the church just like all of our kids And I must have prayed the sinner's prayer a billion times. Lord Jesus, you are God and I am not you. I am a sinner and you are a savior. Forgive me, come into my life and change me. But nothing ever seemed to happen. And so when I got to college, I thought to myself, Christianity It might work for you but it doesn't work for me and I walked away from Jesus and I walked away from the church. Beloved, like John the Baptist sitting in a prison cell, we all walk in through those doors with expectations of God. John didn't, Expect that by following Jesus, he would end up in a prison cell. Like John the Baptist, we all come to Jesus with expectations. And here's the deal that's not necessarily a problem, as long as those expectations don't morph into demands. I love how my friend Jeremy Jones puts it. He says, The issue is oftentimes our questions are like an email message with an attachment that contains a virus. And that virus is a demand. Our questions come with demands. I was once counseling a dear Christian brother and friend of mine. His marriage was on the rocks. It had been coming unraveled for a long time. There had been problems for for years and years and years. And he told me this. He said, I've been praying for God's help and God's healing of my marriage for who knows how long, but nothing has ever happened, nothing has ever changed. And he said, I'm through with Christianity. I'm through with God. If 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 there is a God, he must hate me. I'm through with him. Now, I recognize that those words are, are honest. And they come from a place of of desperate, deep discouragement and hurt. But what I want you to see is that in addition to their honesty, they also reveal something to us. They reveal that my friend had predetermined how God should and must answer his prayers. Do you see the problem? It's called spiritual blackmail. But more than that, it's, it's a power play. It's a power move. My friend was saying to God, you have to satisfy my demands or else. In other words, it, it was an attempt to, to put himself in the place of God and to make God answerable to him. Can you see why God doesn't answer those questions? Why God can't and won't answer our questions when they come infected with the virus of demands. Again, to quote Jeremy Jones, to do so would be to give us a false answer to our questions, to do so would actually confirm the central delusion of the human heart that we are God and that the living and true God must answer to us. This is one way to think about the original sin. It's the lie that Adam and Eve brought, bought from the serpent in the garden of Eden. Go ahead and eat the fruit. Go ahead and eat the fruit from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil because when you do, you will be what? What? you will be like God. Again, this is the central delusion of your heart and my heart. And the fact is this, that it's, It's not that God doesn't love us and so refuses to answer our questions. It's actually because he does love us that he refuses to answer our questions. His silence is the silence of protection. His silence is the silence of grace. His silence is the silence of mercy. His silence is the silence of love. If God answers our questions according to our demands... He will only confirm the central delusion of our hearts, leaving us to embrace an idol of our imaginations rather than the living and true God. And God loves you too much to let that happen. Do you see how God's silence can actually be evidence of his love and his commitment to you? Now, you may be wondering why we read from Genesis chapter 3 as part of our sermon text this morning. I don't typically think of Genesis 3 as an Advent text. Well, the reason we read it is because while sometimes God is silent, in his silence, God is actually speaking to us. He is actually asking us a question. We asked him a question: God, where are you? And he asks us, No, 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 no. The question is, Where are you? If you know your Bible, oftentimes when God has asked a question, what does he do? He asks a question in return. Think for a minute about the Book of Job. In chapters one and two, everything falls apart for Job. And then from chapter three to chapter 37, Job over and over and over asks the question, where is God? What is God doing? Why is God allowing this to happen? Finally, in chapter 38, God responds to Job's question, but he doesn't respond with an answer. Instead, he asks Job a question. Who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? And he goes on for two solid chapters in rapid fire machine gun. And and God shoots question after question after question to Job. So much so that by the time we get to chapter 40, Job confesses, I am of small account. What shall I say? I lay my hand on on my mouth. This is this is oftentimes how God works. This is his modus operandi. Very often God answers our questions with a question. He answers our question, which is rooted in the fundamental delusion of the heart, with the same question that he asked Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. Adam and Eve had just eaten from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. They've bought the serpent's lie. Eat and you will be like God and they hear God walking in the cool of the garden, what do they do? They dive into the bushes in an attempt to hide from God. What does God do? Verse nine, but the Lord God called to the man and said, where are you? What's God doing? I mean, he's God. He knows where Adam and Eve are. What's he, what's he doing? Why, why does he ask them, where are you? Beloved, God wants Adam and Eve to understand and to recognize what's just happened. Like a master surgeon, God is taking, the scal- taking a scalpel and he is making his first incision and he is exposing to them, the cancer of sin. He's exposing to them the cancer of shame and guilt. He's exposing to them the twisting and corrupting nature of sin. He's exposing to them their deepest problems. Beloved, like a a drunk driver on New Year's Eve, Adam and Eve are under the influence of sin and it affects everything. Whereas before, they would walk with God in the cool of the garden. Now they are hiding. Whereas before, their words with God were no doubt words of love and adoration and praise, but now their words are words of defense and deflection. You see, God God wants them to see their sin. He wants them to see their shame and their guilt. He wants them to see how how their sin has twisted and corrupted them in every way, including the way they think about him. But God loves them enough not to leave them as they are, lost in the delusions of their heart. And he loves us enough not to leave us that way as well. Beloved, do you have any Advent questions? What do you do? This morning, God is asking us. He's asking you and he is asking me the same question he asked Adam and Eve that morning. Where are you? He wants you to see that like Adam and Eve, you and I, we are under the influence of sin Even as believers, we still struggle with the presence of sin and its twisting and distorting effects on the way we think and on the way we live. God is asking you, where are you? And you may object, but I don't hear hear God saying anything to me this morning. And what I would say to you is God is speaking to you. He is speaking to you this morning through his word by the spirit. God's question to Adam and Eve is his question to you right now. Where are you? God's doing the same thing in you right now that he was doing that day in the Garden of Eden to Adam and Eve. He's exposing the many ways sin twists and distorts us in every way. And he's exposing our deepest problem, the delusion of our heart, that we actually think we're God, that that God should should answer to us. And in doing so, God is actually revealing himself to us. He is revealing that he is real. He is revealing that he is here. He is revealing that he is with us, that he's, he's, he's actively at work in our lives, right here and right now. Do you hear him? But more than that, through his word and spirit, God is showing you his heart of love for you. That even as you question him, that even as you come to him with your demands, that even as you try to make a power move on him, the God of the universe is pursuing you. In Philippians 2, the Apostle Paul tells us that the Lord Jesus Christ emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of humanity. Or as Luke puts it in his gospel, he was born a baby boy wrapped in swaddling cloths and laid in a manger. But that's not all that God is revealing to us in Jesus God does more than simply identify with us in his incarnation. The apostle Paul goes on, being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Beloved, this is who God is. This is what God is like. This is the love of God that for our sakes, God the Father made God the Son to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. This is God. Here's the question. In light of who God has revealed himself to be in Jesus, in his word, won't you trust him Won't you lay down your list of demands and accept his way of revealing himself to you by his word and spirit? Let me say that one more time. Won't you lay down your list of demands and accept his way of revealing himself to you by his word and spirit. I'll close with this. I've been, I've been reading Jamie Smith's new book "On the Road with St. Augustine." It's a great read. And um, what, I've re- what I've realized I sort of I think I learned this in seminary but uh, Augustine was, is one of the greatest thinkers to, to have ever lived. He spent the early part of his life seeking and searching for something that he couldn't quite put his finger on, but, all, but always eluded him. He sought freedom and authenticity. He sought success and had it. He sought recognition. He sought pleasure. He sought enlightenment. And here's the thing, he achieved everything he sought. And yet, every time he got what he thought he was after, he realized that it wasn't enough. Then one day, near the point of despair, Augustine is in a garden and he hears some children singing, Take and Read. By God's grace, he heard that song as an invitation from God. So he picked up a Bible and he just let it fall open. It's not how I would recommend you study your Bible, but it is how Augustine came to Jesus. He op- the Bible just fell open to Romans chapter 13 and he just started to read the first things that he saw. He read these words, put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. Desires. Years later, he was reflecting upon this experience and he said this, as if before a peaceful light streaming into my heart, all the dark shadows of doubt fled away. Beloved God works the same way today. The fact of the matter is this, because of the twisting and distorting effects of sin, you will never develop a true and accurate view of God through your interpretation of your experiences. But God has revealed himself in the scriptures and particularly in the person and work of Jesus Christ. And what you need to know is that God's revelation of himself is always more reliable than anything you and I think we've figured out along the way. I love the way Isaac Watts, I love what Isaac Watts says in his hymn laden with guilt and full of fears. He says, laden with guilt and full of fear, I fly to thee, my Lord, and not a glimpse of hope appears, but in thy written word. The volumes of my Father's grace does all my griefs assuage. Here I behold my Savior's face in every page. Beloved of the Lord, what do you do with your Advent questions? In God's written word, we hear the living God who questions us and convicts us and comforts us by his grace. Take and read. In God's written word, we experience the living word who loves us with a love that will never let us go and promises us that he will never leave us or forsake us. Take and read. In God's written word, we encounter the living word whose ways are not our ways and whose thoughts are not ours thoughts, but who reveals himself as the way, the truth, and the life. Take and read. In God's written word, we see the living word Beholding the beauty of the Savior's face on every single page. Take and read. In the words of the author of Hebrews, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. Take, read, and believe. Would you pray with me? Father, thank you that you sent Jesus not to come for the righteous, but for sinners. Thank you that you pursue people like us who make demands and want to think we're God when we're not. Thank you that you've revealed yourself to us in Jesus that we see your heart for sinners and that you would live the life that we should live and you died the death that we deserve to die so that we could be called your sons and daughters. Lord, I pray that you would give us a hunger for you, a hunger that we would seek to satisfy by spending time with you in your word. Lord, we pray that when we pick up the Bible to read, your spirit would illumine our hearts and our minds and that you would have your way with us. We pray that today, we pray that every day. In Christ's name, amen.